So we've kind of talked about the summer slump. It's what David has been talking about the last couple of weeks, uh, this kind of lull in the summer. And I don't know about you, but for me, once it gets up into the temperature that it was this last week, I'm done. I don't want to go outside. I don't want to do anything. Uh, I am miserable. Uh, I am so hot and sweaty. I went to one meeting this week and came home, and it was, I was absolutely dripping. My wife's like, are you okay? And I'm like, listen, baby, it's, it's 100 degrees outside, and I'm a big fella. So... Um, if I just stand in a parking lot for a few moments, I, it's over. I'm, sweat's just running down my face, and so I'm kind of hiding. And I was on the phone with somebody this week, and they're like, uh, how are you surviving all this? And I said, I am sitting in the basement. I am in the corner of the basement, as cool and as dark as I could find. Um, but there's also the slump that just happens for businesses. Businesses see a slump in the summer. They see a drop in the summer. Um, and you may think to yourself, oh, not all businesses. Pretty much, um, there's a huge chunk of that. Disney, you know, you think Disney is super busy. They had one of their lowest uh, attendances this July 4th weekend, which is a huge weekend for them. They had one of their lowest attendances because people aren't coming um, because it's a little bit of a summer slump. We've had some enthusiastic travel coming out of COVID, and Disney is now experiencing some of the drop-off from that. Um, there's also, you see it in coffee shops, you see it in local businesses all the time. Teachers talk about the slump, summer slump uh, in a very different terms. They talk about the kids coming back to school and having lost what they had previously. Um, that they knew this information, that they'd reviewed this information, but because they went two months, three, you know, you know, two and a half months without any instruction, they've begun to lose some of those things, and it's going to take a few months for them to get back. Um, and partially, it just takes time for the behaviors to come back. You know, kids have to get used to sitting in a classroom again. I remember when my youngest or my oldest first started going to school. One of the things he would tell me is, uh, especially as he got to the end of kindergarten, is I really had a good teacher. She finally taught me all the rules for school so I could stop getting in trouble. And, I'm, and oh, yeah, that's great. That's an important thing to know. But then you go back in the next year, and you've got to remember all those rules, and it's not always easy. Um, and so the summer slump kind of hits all of us in different ways and in different places. And in particular, it hits us even in our faith, um, that we can feel this kind of uh, waning, um, this kind of thinness, this kind of just, uh, when it comes to our faith. And so this morning in particular, we're going to lean into that, that question around doubts. Um, that's one of the things that we don't often talk about with faith as, as openly as we probably should, um, is what doubts we have, how those doubts affect us, how do we even approach those doubts, um, what does Scripture have to say about those doubts. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, but I want you to think back, if you've had kids or you were a kid, um, I want you to think back to uh, what it was like when you didn't quite understand how everything worked. Um, one of the statistics that I saw in kind of preparing for this that I'm I'm pretty sure is a little low, is um, Paul Harris did a study, and one of the things they estimate is that kids, from the time they start talking until five years old, ask around 40,000 questions. Um, and that seems low, I'll be honest. If you've ever been around a three-year-old, it definitely seems a little low. Um, but kids are just constantly asking questions. And one of my favorite games uh, with my, my kids was always, let me see if I can just keep answering these until you run out of questions. Um, and, I, and I could win sometimes. Uh, I could get there. But other times they would come and ask me a question that was just like, I don't, I don't even know how to talk to you about this. Um, we had a catastrophe in our house uh, when my uh, kids were in preschool. We got lice. And I did not know what to do. I never had lice. My wife never had lice. 
We didn't know what to do. And so we kind of freaked out and we're uh, panicking. Um, and in retrospect, we overreacted um, and uh, thought we were going to die. Um, but uh, $600 later and uh, a tremendous amount of work later, we, we got rid of all the lice. Um, we were done. But in that process, one of the things we did is we went to the Lice Clinics of America and we were sitting there waiting for treatment uh, for all the whole family and we're talking to the teacher about it or to the, to the uh, tech about it there. Um, she said, hey, you, know, you don't need to overreact. You don't need to wash all the stuffed animals. You need to wash every single thing in the house. Just put stuff in bags and stick it in the garage. After 24 to 48 hours, lice, that lice aren't on people, they die. And so they die off. And I was like, oh, so I didn't have to go and spend, you know, $160 at the laundromat and uh, wash every single fabric thing in our house. That would have been good to know, but all right, it's all clean now. Um, and we got out in the car, my son looked at me and goes, Dad, if lice die when they're not on a person, he's five, mind you, if lice die when they're not on a person every 24 hours, how did the first lice come about? I said, I don't, I don't, they've been around a long time, and uh, they evolved alongside, I, I can't, I don't know how to tell you this. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't know how to talk about this to a five-year-old. Like, how do I talk about, you know, parasitic evolution of a species alongside of human beings? Like, I don't know how to talk about that to a kid. You know, they were in ancient Egypt. They've been around for a long time. Like, I, I just couldn't figure, I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it because he's asking these huge questions. Um, and then other times they ask questions that, they, you know, why is macaroni and cheese yellow? I don't know. That's just that was what color we decided we wanted the cheese to be, and that's what color we've made it since then. Um, and it's not always yellow. Sometimes it's white. And you know, there's those questions that kids ask that are so big and so robust, and then sometimes they're so silly and so childish. And one of the challenges we run into as adults is we eventually reach the point where we just don't really ask questions. Uh, Paul Harris in that same study estimates that the average adult asks between one and five questions a day. Um, and that's it, uh, between one and five questions a day, that we're just not terribly curious. We just kind of feel like we know what's going on. Um, and so when it comes to having this curiosity and this approach to life, uh, there's something to beginning to lean into these conversations. Um, and so this morning, we're going to look specifically at this question around doubt and how do we approach doubt, how do we handle doubt, what does God have to say about doubt. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, if you've got your Bible app, you can flip open to the Gospel of John. So it's going to be John, it's going to be in the New Testament. Um, when it, we talk about the Gospel of John, it's the story of Jesus' life written from John's perspective. John's kind of telling us about it. Um, and it's one of my favorite books in Scripture for all kinds of reasons, but in part because of how John presents and talks about uh, Jesus and the disciples. And so we're going to be in John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. So John, it's just on the other side of the resurrection here. This is on the other side of Jesus. So, but what's happened is this entire time, things are going really well. If you were one of the disciples following Jesus, you'd be like, man, we got in at the ground floor. You know, we, we were here when things weren't great, you know, we're not a bandwagon fan. We're not just jumping in when things are going well. We've been here since the beginning, and it's beginning to go well. Things are, they're winning. Things feel good. As they come into the city of Jerusalem, there's this huge triumphal entry. All the people are celebrating. They have got to feel like they are on the winning team. They have chosen the right horse. This is going really well. And then Jesus is arrested. And it kind of upends everything. There's still a little bit like, hey, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. He's arrested, but, you know, he's been, in, he's been in close scrapes before. This will be fine. And then he's beaten, and he's crucified. 
and the wind just goes out of the disciples' sails. They begin to hide. Um, they begin to uh, kind of disappear. Um, they, are, they kind of gather together periodically because they're not sure what to do at this point. They've spent the last three years following this guy, um, teaching and uh, leading people, and then they're stuck trying to figure out how do we respond. And, and then there's this one disciple named Thomas. And we, we even know him, if, you, if you're familiar with the stories of Scripture, you even know him as a doubting Thomas. That's just his name. He, gets it, he just gets that as his moniker. He's doubting Thomas. Um, he doesn't get to be known by the saying, hey, let's follow Jesus. Even if we die, let's follow him, which is one of the things he says in John um, coming in to, um, to see Lazarus. He says, you know, let's follow him even if it means we die. You know, we don't call him bold Thomas. We don't say, hey, look at him. He was ready to risk it all. We call him doubting Thomas. And it's because of what happens. So Jesus is resurrected, and he appears first to the women, which in that culture would have been a little scandalous already because you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily trust the testimony of a woman. You wouldn't necessarily have women speak in court. Women couldn't sign contracts. And so you had this weird uh, approach to how they viewed women. So the fact that the women are saying this is a little on iffy. And then the rest of the disciples say, hey, Thomas, well, you weren't here. Well, you were out. Jesus showed up. He was talking to us. And Thomas's response is great. He says this um, in John, uh, starting in chapter 20, uh, verse 24, he says this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus. Uh, so Thomas, Did uh, Didymus, and the twin are all the same word. So Thomas is an Aramaic word. It means the twin. Didymus is a Greek word that also means the twin. And in English, the twin means the twin. So you've got the same name here. So if you see that kind of in your Bible, if you see it says Thomas, also known as Didymus, they're just trying to let you know that, hey, sometimes people in different communities would call him by a different name. You know, a lot of the disciples spoke Aramaic, but the New Testament is primarily written in what we call Koine Greek. It's just a little bit of Aramaic in there, but primarily in Koine Greek, which was kind of the marketplace Greek, kind of common language. It wasn't formal or fancy language of literature, but it was kind of the normal language of people. Um, but they say Thomas, uh, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he told the disciples, or so the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is just saying, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I don't know what you're, I, I don't buy it. And I was asking my kids today, I was like, how, how far would it have to go for you, your friend to prove that they met a celebrity, a YouTuber that was important to you? Like, how far would it go? And I said, if you saw a picture of the two of them together, he's like, no, I, you know, pictures can be faked. You can, you can fake a picture. And I said, what if you faked the picture? But he said, hey, here's where it happened. And you, there was a flyer for a, you could, we could go look at like a bookstore here and see like, hey, this YouTuber was coming to Wichita to sign autographs at this bookstore. So maybe you really did bump into him. He said, I still, I still probably wouldn't believe it. And I said, well, what would it take? What would it take for you to believe that your friend got to meet this YouTuber? And he said, I just have to see it for myself, I guess. And that's a little bit of what Thomas is saying. He's like, it's so easy to fake this. It's so easy to make this up that I just need to see this to believe it. And so it goes on. A week later, and this is, this is my favorite part of the story, a week later, so Thomas has told all the disciples, I'm not believing it till I see it. And Jesus doesn't show up for another week because he's not in a hurry. He's not anxious. He's not afraid that Thomas is doubting. He's not like, oh man, 
I only picked 12 guys. One of them was already bad. What am I going to do? I got Thomas over here doubting. I'm down to 10. You know, my, my team's getting thin here. I got to show up and firm up the team. I got to make sure they know. Um, which is, I think, most of our responses. When we know somebody's mad, when we know somebody's frustrated, when we know somebody's disappointed, we want to show up and fix it. We want to fix it immediately, as quick as we can. And Jesus is just like, you know, it's fine. That's all right. That's all right. I'm okay with that. You do you, Thomas. And so it says a week later, uh, it says a, a, a week later, his disciples were gathered in the house again, and Thomas with the, was, was, was with them. The doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I think this is one of the most confusing ways to say this. I can't tell what Thomas is doing here. Most scholars have all kinds of speculation here. can't tell if, if he just, if he appears, comes through the wall, he picks the lock, they're just all praying with their heads bowed, and then they look up and he's there. There's no context to what's happening here, other than they are hiding that door is locked not because, uh, not because they were afraid they were going to get out, but because they don't want anybody else coming in. They don't want to be snuck up on. And then Jesus shows up in the middle of their midst. And he shows up and he says this. He says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand in uh, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's this remarkable moment where Jesus doesn't show up and chastise Thomas. He doesn't show up and say, Thomas, how dare you doubt me? I told you this was going to happen. I told you this was coming. I said, I, said, I am the temple. You tear it down, and I'll, and, and I'll be back in three days. It's three days. The women told you I'm back. Your friends told you I'm back. Why don't you believe? I told you this was coming. I told you that this was going to happen. What is wrong with you? Because that's what I would have done. If one of my friends would have doubted me, and then I could show up and say, hey, that thing I said was going to happen, and you told me it wasn't going to happen, totally happened. What do you think about that? It's pretty cool, huh? I'm pretty smart. You should trust me. Uh, I may or may not have said that to my wife more than once. Hey, look, I said it was going to happen, and it happened. And she said, yeah, but you also said other things were going to happen, and they didn't. And I said, well, we pretend those don't happen. We ignore those. We only focus on the wins. But it's this challenge that Thomas has of how do you approach this? How do you begin to move forward? Thomas had a set of expectations, a way of seeing the world, and it was broken. And the challenge for us is the way some of us see faith, the way some of us see the world, kind of sort of begins to break. It kind of sort of begins to break because there's this ambiguity and this uncertainty in life. There's so much ambiguity and uncertainty in life. The more you know, the more you study, the more you look, the harder it is always to reconcile it. There's this phenomenal truth in fractal geometry the father of factual geometry, who's a French gentleman, whose name I was very confident in this morning when I rehearsed it three times, but I'm not going to try it right now because I'm sure I'm going to uh, just butcher it with my Kentucky accent. Um, but the father of fractal geometry, one of the things he showed is if, depending on how much you measure, is how long a coastline is. 
So if you come in and measure a coastline of England with uh, 100-kilometer measurement increments, the coastline of England comes out to be about 2,500 square, uh, square kilometers, or 2,500 kilometers long. But if you go in and measure that same coastline in 50-kilometer increments, all of a sudden that coastline becomes uh, 3,500 kilometers long. And if you come in and measure that coastline in inches, the coastline becomes much, much longer. And if you came in and actually measured the very, very edges of the water, the coastline functionally becomes infinite because there's always another corner. There's always another nook. There's always another cranny. That the closer you zoom in, the more complex it becomes. And it's not just true in trying to measure the coastline of something. Um, it's not just this unique thing to fractal geometry. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle tells us that uh, two things cannot belong in the same place at the same time. This water bottle, you can't put another water bottle where this water bottle is. It just doesn't work. Unless, unless you're talking about uh, the tiny atoms of water in here. You're talking about the tiny little particles that make that up. And on the subatomic level, on the quantum level, two particles absolutely can occupy the same place at the same time. Uh, we don't know why. We don't understand it. And there's a point at which it becomes big enough that it doesn't anymore. And do you know why that is? We don't either. We don't either. We don't know why when a particle becomes larger, it can't, it, it follows a different set of rules. We just have not figured it out yet. Um, but it's this remarkable thing. One of the other remarkable things, I remember learning about this a few years back uh, from a physicist and just being stunned by it. Um, two atoms can't touch each other. So the, 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 the weak and strong forces push and pull, and two atoms can't necessarily touch each other, especially if they're not of the same kind. And so they can't touch each other. So what that means is I can't touch this table. I feel like I touch the table because there's pressure, there's, there, there's things there. But physically, if you get down to a subatomic level, I'm not touching the table. The forces are repelling my hand from the table. And it sounds made up. It sounds, it sounds like nonsense when you hear it. And yet it's true. And it's one of these amazing principles. Uh, there's an amazing neuro, uh, neuroscientist who wrote a great book uh, called uh, Mozart's Brain and the Fighter Pilot, in which one of the things he talks about is this. He's got this great quote. He said, the eye is not a camera that objectively takes a photo of the world out there. Rather, what the eye sees is determined by what the brain has learned. And this suggests a short mantra. Learn more and see more. Learn more and see more. And I was talking about this with my kids as we were driving up. We were in Oklahoma this weekend, and so we were driving up this morning to be here with you all. And as we were driving up, I was talking. I said, you know, when we look out here, you know, there are people who can see more than us. And like, mm, like everybody's skeptical. And it's like, ah, I don't know about that, Ed. It doesn't totally make sense. But think about it. If you get out in the country and you look up and you see the stars and you see thousands and thousands of stars. I remember one time being out in a remote part of Utah, up in the mountains, perfectly clear night, and seeing the Milky Way for the very first time, and just being stunned at its beauty and its complexity. But if I was standing there with somebody who'd been uh, an astronomer for decades, do you think we see the same thing? Do we think we view the world the same thing? Even as we're driving back from Oklahoma, I'm looking, I can see, hey, look at all these trees. It's a great-looking trees. I know some of these trees are deciduous trees, and some of these trees are conifers. And that's it. That's as far as it goes for me. 
I don't know what kind of trees these are. I don't know what they look like. I can't tell if they're healthy or not. But if I was riding with somebody who is a botanist or an arborist who had studied trees for years, who knew this landscape well, they could look out at those fields and look out at the, the median on the highway, and they would absolutely recognize the kind of trees that they are. And they could tell how healthy they were, how the leaves are growing, what that tree had experienced. They could even make some adjustments and assessments on what that tree is going to look like in a few years. I've got none of it. I just can't tell because I don't know what I don't know. The older I get and the more I grow, the more I begin to question how much I always knew about things. We were back in Kentucky uh, this last week visiting my family. Um, and one of just the weirdest experiences, and maybe some of you have had this as well, I grew up in this small town in eastern Kentucky, and we went back to visit, and I was even taking my kids there, uh, showing them around a little bit. And when I drive on the roads... They're just smaller than I remember. And the streets are shorter. And there's this road in my hometown called Lansdowne. And I remember it being this huge thoroughfare. And we drove through it, and it would not qualify as an alley in Wichita. It is such a tiny road. Two cars couldn't drive down it at the same time. Uh, you couldn't drive down it with another car. And in my head, as a kid, this was a very dangerous road. And I, I, had, to, I had to get old enough to cross it because I viewed the world as a kid, and I'm not anymore. And I've grown, and I've seen things, and it's changed. And part of what we're invited into is to recognize that as we grow, as we learn, so should our faith. C.S. Lewis has this really remarkable way of dealing with this in his book on the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series that he wrote uh, in the book Prince, Prince Caspian. He has this exchange. Uh, Lucy, who's one of the younger kids in the book, comes and sees Aslan for the first time. And Aslan is this lion that kind of represents Jesus in the story, represents God in the story. And so he's this uh, kind of wonderful creature that kind of moves through but is also scary and exciting and powerful. And Aslan finally gets to see the kids again in Prince Caspian. And Lucy says this. She says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan responds, that is because you're older, little one. Not because you're bigger, she says. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's this invitation to recognize that as we continue to grow, as we continue to view God, we will find him to continue to grow. And one of the very tough parts for us is as kids beginning to leave aside some of those childish things. Again, as we were talking with my kids about this, trying to think through how they view the world, how they see the world, we were talking about math and talking about what's that experience like when you go from kind of uh, fundamental math into algebra, that first transition into pre-algebra, algebra. My son is starting to experience that. He's in junior high. He'll be in seventh grade this year. As we were talking about it in the car, and one of the things that one of my other kids said is, oh, I know about algebra. We did some algebra in class, and, and they did. They solved for some problems. They were kind of doing some basic algebra. And I said, oh, okay. She said, yeah, it's not that hard. It's pretty simple. I said, just wait. Because once you, once you get it, then you get to go to geometry and calculus and trig. And you get, to, you get to take these basic skills, and it keeps getting more and more complex. I said, what's crazy is there are math problems that we know and have known about for years that we still haven't solved yet. We still haven't figured out yet. People who've devoted their life to studying math, people who've devoted their life, 
people who devoted their lives and know that it's not math, but it's maths. There's more than one, which is weird to somebody who grew up and thought there was just one, just one set of numbers, and you just have to figure it out. And yet it's continued to grow and to change. And if you only ever approach it, and you only ever see it with eyes of a child, you miss how much it really has grown and how much it really has changed. And our faith should be like that as well, that as we grow, as we begin to approach things, as we begin to see and hear the scriptures, it should change us. Paul says this in, first, in the, his letter to the church in, in Corinth, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Some of us, when it comes to our faith, have a pretty childish view. We have a pretty childish view of who God is, of how our faith fits together, about what questions we should be asking, of how how things work. And we struggle to know how to do things. I remember so confidently as a kid, um, being in, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, growing up with a dad who listened to talk radio all the time, growing up with a dad uh, who had newspapers laying around all the time. Uh, and so I remember being at a friend's house, and his dad said something about the United Nations, and I had fired off some nonsense opinion about the UN as a 14-year-old. And he looked at me and he goes, you ever, uh, you ever consider that maybe there's some people who've spent their entire lives trying to figure that out, and they still don't have good answers? Uh, and maybe at 14 you might not know? And I genuinely thought, nope, sure didn't. And they should have asked me, because I got an answer. I understand it. It's so easy for us to fall into that place where we say, oh, it's simple. It's simple. And it's not. It's so much more complex than that. And it's true with everything that we approach. You take one anatomy and physiology class in college, and all of a sudden you know as much as a doctor. You log into WebMD, and you got it mastered. We got it, we got it sorted. We take one economics class. We listen to a couple hours of talk radio, and we've got political uh, issues sorted. And the truth is those things are so much more complicated. But so is our faith. There's this wonderful quote um, by a theologian whose name I did not catch, um, but he says this. He said, the point of Christianity, the ta- or the task of Christianity Uh, It's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers for every questions, but to make us progressively more aware of mystery. God is not the object of our knowledge, but the cause of our wonder. God is not the object of our knowledge, but the cause of our wonder. At the end of the day, one of the things that's remarkable for me is how much bigger my questions have gotten. Things that I just don't understand. Things that I can't even begin to think about. One of the things we know for certain because of Albert Einstein is E equals MC squared. We know that's true. We don't know why it's true. I, I mean, you might know. I don't know. My, my degree is a bachelor in biblical literature. I don't know why that's true. I'm not a physicist. I don't understand it. But what I know is it means time is not always the same. In fact, time is a created thing. 
that time moves and changes depending on how fast you travel through space, depending on where you are in space. And that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand that at all. How does, a God, how does God exist in a, apart from time? I don't even know how the world exists. I can't think in those terms. I don't even know what that means. I can say those words and I don't understand them. And yet, it's okay. I don't have to have the answers. One of the remarkable things about following Jesus is he doesn't ask us to totally understand everything. That's not even the concern in scripture. We live in a culture in which we really do want things buttoned up and figured out and answered. And it just, it was not a concern for the early church. Instead, they wanted to ask this bigger question of who is God? Who is Jesus? And how do we respond to that? That was the question that was laid before us. And so when Thomas comes for these doubts, it's Thomas beginning to grow up. I re- we don't know for sure what caused Thomas to doubt. It's not talked about in scripture. There's lots of speculation. Um, one of the theories that I think holds the most weight is he really expected Jesus to come in and to kind of be King David, to come in and to conquer, to take up the sword, to overthrow the Romans, to chase him out, and to establish a new kingdom. That's, I really think that's part of the anxiety for Thomas and the rest of the disciples, is there's this feeling of like, hey, we've got this. This is what we're after. You are going to be King David, you are going to be the Messiah, and you are going to liberate your people. And Jesus said, absolutely. But it's so much bigger than you think it is. It's so much more than you think it is. And Thomas is wrestling with that reconciliation of beginning to view Jesus as bigger. We don't know for sure what happens with Thomas after this. Um, it's not, you know, there's a lot of speculation in scripture. One of the things, we, it seems pretty likely, um, there's a ton of historic and archaeological evidence that points toward this. Um, Thomas absolutely was zealous for Jesus from that point on and followed him the rest of his life and began to preach the gospel and began to travel. And he traveled, and this is, this, for some of you, this may be new information, for some of you it's old, um, all the way into India. Uh, we have, there's archaeological sites that we can point to that talk about Thomas coming there, um, Thomas beginning to preach and to establish churches um, as far away as India. And again, we can go back into the archaeological record, and there's all kinds of inscriptions that talk about these disciples traveling all over, into India, into far China, um, into Spain, up into Britain, um, just beginning to move around. And yet we think that our questions and our doubts are too big and we don't know what to do. And part of it is I want to encourage you, it is okay to have questions. It is okay to have doubts. One of the things that I've learned as somebody who's followed Jesus for a lot of years is my questions now are so much bigger than my questions when I was a kid. Um, they're so much harder to answer. They're so much harder for me to even articulate all of the time. And yet it's okay. Part of having faith is having doubts. You've probably talked to somebody before about this. Courage is not a lack of fear, but it's action in spite of fear. The courage, if you're not afraid, it's not courage. And if you don't have doubts, it's not faith. If your faith this morning, if you're here this morning and your faith totally makes sense to you, everything about it fits together, 
Everything about it is buttoned up. You have no questions, no concerns, nothing that makes you uncomfortable, nothing that you're like, hey, I don't really talk about that in public because I don't, I don't really understand it. If that's not a part of your faith, if it all is clear and perfect, I want to tell you right now, you don't have faith. Maybe you have faith of a child, but it's probably time to begin to grow up, to begin to ask some big questions. There is a remarkable book, if you're somebody who's struggled with doubt, who's struggled with how to even talk about this, um, you've, you were kind of given some Sunday school answers as a kid, um, kind of given some Bible songs, maybe you went to VBS a few times, and that's kind of the extent of your faith. Um, there's some great books to kind of wrestle with this. One of my favorites is written by a gentleman named Roger Olson, and the title of the book is this, Questions for All Your Answers. Questions for All Your Answers. And he goes through and begins to help you think through how to approach scripture, how to understand things, how to begin to take some of these more complex ideas that we have to experience and interact with and how our faith applies to them. There's a couple things that I think we can each do as we walk out of here. One is if you're struggling with doubts, if you've got questions, if you've got things you're not sure how to handle, um, I'd encourage you to begin to seek wise counsel. Proverbs 24, 26 tells us uh, that it's through many advisors that we find wisdom. Uh, that it's through many advisors that we find wisdom. So begin to find people to talk to. Begin to find people to listen to. Uh, there's tons of books and resources out there. Um, there's phenomenal people who've thought through these things and asked questions. Um, there's a great little series called Popular Patristics that kind of walks through the early church fathers in a really accessible and easy way. Um, one of the things that we sometimes miss is um, many of our questions have already been questions that people have talked about hundreds of years ago, sometimes thousands of years ago. Um, they've wrestled with some of the same questions that we have. Um, and so that's a great series as well. But begin to seek counsel. Find somebody to talk to. Find somebody to begin to ask. When you sit on your doubts and let them just hang out and hang in you and let them undermine you, begin to weaken your faith. And the other thing is to keep asking questions. I can't express this enough. Keep asking questions. What does that mean? What does that mean for me? How do I respond to that? Why is that? Why do people believe that? Where does that come from? Begin asking questions about your faith. Paul has this remarkable verse in the same letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. This is 1 Corinthians 8 chapter 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know what they ought to know. And it's this remarkable statement of Paul. He's talking specifically about meat being sacrificed to idols and the attention that that would create in that community um, and how to respond to that. And part of what he's saying is if you are confident and you think this is all buttoned up and you think this is clear and you think this is simple, pause and ask some better questions. Pause and listen. Because our faith has room for those of us who doubt. Doubting doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Doubting, in fact, often means you do have faith, and it's something you get to wrestle with. And last thing I'm going to leave you with this. Begin to be comfortable with mystery, of not always understanding, of not always having it all fit together. Um, I don't understand why God chose to use us. I still think it's one of the most profound and confusing things in all of Scripture. I get that we're sinful. I've been around people. <laughs> They're sinful. In case you haven't been around people lately, they're the worst. But, and I get forgiveness. I get the need for reconciliation, that this isn't how it's supposed to be. I understand that. What I don't understand is why on earth God would choose to use us to continue to advance that. 
It makes no sense to me. Why would he use people who were once enemies, people who were once against him as a part of his saving work? Why would he call them a part of his family? It just does not make sense. And yet I'm so thankful that it's true. So this morning, if you've got doubts, you're in good company. And I invite you to come uh, and to begin to pray and to begin to lean into that. Um, if you want to talk, I'd be happy to talk. Um, if, you, if you don't have questions, I have some questions for you. I give you my questions. <laughs> so, um, but know that there is space for those of us who have questions. And there is space for those of us who need to grow up a little bit in our faith. And there is space for leaving some of those childish views of God and of Scripture set to the side and to begin to step into this rich tapestry that's called the church. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are and for what you're doing. God, I thank you for this remarkable story of Thomas. This remarkable moment in which he has been walking with Jesus for years. And yet he has doubts and questions. And he's not met with chastisement. He's not met with condemnation. But he's invited in to a relationship. He's met with laughter and with warmth and with acceptance. He's met with an invitation. Come and believe. God, would we recognize that when it comes to faith, when it comes to following you, when it comes to Christianity, that it's never been about having answers to all the questions. But instead, it's been about the mystery of following you. The mystery of who you have revealed yourself to be. Again, God, we thank you so much that we are part of a tradition and a faith that is that robust. That when questions come up, when concerns arise, they're not dismissed, but there's space to lean into who you are. God, again, I thank you for all of these things. In the name of our King, the one who did come as a Messiah, was beaten and crucified and was raised to new life and who's the King of everything and that nothing stays the same because of him. And it's in the name of that king we pray. Amen.